Gracious and loving God, we pray that only your word be spoken, only your word heard, and only your word lived. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, if you tried uh, to describe God, what God is like, I bet it would be quite a challenge. You know, I was thinking about someone uh, stopping me in the street and asking me uh, immediately, describe God in one sentence. And when I was thinking about that, I wasn't sure if I could actually do it. And so I was uh, reading scripture and reflecting on it. And I was just so grateful that when the writers of the Bible reflected on God, they got it down to one sentence. And it shows up throughout the story of the Bible like this. And this is from Exodus chapter 34. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What really stood out to me this week was that God is merciful and gracious. And uh, for a few Sundays now, we've been looking at the grace of God. And you know what? In ancient Hebrew, the word for grace is hanun, and it's related to the noun hen. And hen is often translated as grace or favor. And you see, the, see this in the Bible many times. In the Psalms, for instance, a poet is described as having lips of hen because a poet can arrange words in a way that brings delight. Or a jewel is an ornament of hen because it attracts attention and favor. And that's why hen is used to describe a gift given with delight or favor. So if you consider uh, the story of Esther, uh, in the story of Esther, when she asks the king to spare her and her people from death, she calls this a request for hen. And because the king delights in her, he favors her and grants her request. Now, the most extreme kind of hen is showing favor to someone who doesn't deserve it. Like Israel, the people of God in our Exodus reading. I want us to reflect on their character. God showers his people with grace, but they refuse to receive it. Instead, they complain. They saw how God used Moses to rescue them from slavery in Egypt, yet they doubted God and complained. God opened the Red Sea, uh, covered them with cloud by day, and warmed them with a pillar of fire by night, yet they doubted God and complained. And when they were hungry, God sent them manna, heavenly bread, for them to eat, but they doubted God. They tried to hoard it, which was against God's command, and they complained. And now they're thirsty, but instead of prayerfully trusting in God, they complain. I mean, for honest, this group of people sounds terrible. Anyone uh, could see that there's no way this people deserves grace. And yet the story tells us that they get the water. And honestly, we have to be wondering why. Well, when the people complain to Moses, what does he do? Well, it's simple, really. Moses asks God what to do. Moses himself is frustrated and thirsty, and so he brings the anxieties of the people before the Lord. In other words, Moses prays, and God answers. God, through Moses' staff, gives them water from the rock. Now, I know this feels simplistic, but what if the most important thing our churches can do right now during this COVID crisis is to pray? 
we often can't tell if prayer is working, which is why I feel it's unproductive. It's an unproductive response to our challenging situation. But look at what it does in the story of Moses and Israel. I mean, it might look like a magic moment where the people needed water, Moses asked God, and then ta-da, there it is. But that's not it. We need to see this water moment in the light of a 40-year journey where God has been showing up again and again to teach this people a crucial lesson. That in every single aspect of their life, they need to turn to God first. Every time that people are forced to rely on God uh, for everything, God is showing them the kind of people they're destined to be. So you want food? Well, you got to ask God. Need water? Okay, hit the rock. There it is. Do you need laws to organize your social life? Boom, Ten Commandments. But here's the point. The prayers do more than solve their imminent challenges. In time, they transform their identity. Notice that Moses doesn't pray alone. God says in verse 5, involve your elders. When we turn to God in prayer, relying on God in difficult times, God's grace is showered on us. His grace transforms us. How? Well, through prayer, infighting is transformed into community. Fear transformed into faith. Prayer changes who they are as a people. And so that's why, contrary to what you might think, prayer is not a way of running away from challenges. Prayer is actually a way of running straight at them. Not because prayers are sometimes answered, because, you know, the truth is that sometimes they are. Sometimes we pray for water and we get water. Sometimes we pray for healing and, okay, we're healed. But those are the exceptions, not the rule. What prayer does re change reliably is us. Prayer is a way of running straight at the tough issues because prayer reshapes bit by bit our very identity. It changes the conversation by first changing who is participating in it. Prayer changes us. Prayer opens us to God's grace and transforms us into people uh, our world actually needs. You see, the, what our communities need now is not more of us going online, absorbing the political uh, and social issues, and then sending out our hot takes. St. Paul tells us that what we actually need, and he tells us in the letter to the Philippians, is that we need people who are following Jesus because his love has made a difference in their life. And because the spirit of Jesus is in their heart, they do whatever it takes to agree with each other, to love each other, to be deep-spirited friends, uh, they don't push their way to the front. They don't sweet talk their way to the top. They put themselves aside and help others get ahead. They're not obsessed with getting their own advantage. They forget themselves long enough to lend a helping hand. In other words, what we need more than anything else is individuals whose lives have been transformed by the power of the gospel. And if you're wondering, well, what is the gospel really? It's God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ. We see it in our Philippians reading today. In fact, Paul is quoting what is widely considered one of the first hymns of the Christian community. Do you remember what uh, Paul said? The hymn is the gospel, and this is what he writes. 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, that's the gospel. Here's what Paul is pointing out. The fact is that the human race is broken. Our sin has broken this world, and that can't be hard to believe. Just look at the condition of the world. We abuse the planet, and we abuse each other to such a heinous degree that our brokenness, our sinfulness, I mean, it can't honestly be doubted except by those who deliberately close their eyes to what's going on in the world and close their eyes to its inception in the human heart. It runs deep. Human history proves that we are as broken and undeserving of grace as the people in the wilderness complaining to Moses. And you would think that when God told Moses to strike the rock, he was going to say, okay, Moses, take the elders, strike the rock, and when you strike it, I am going to strike these people down. I've had enough. They're toxic. They're recalcitrant. I'm just done. But that's not what happened. And why? Because they have, and we have, a God of grace. The rock is struck, and water comes and gives them life. And the reason why, instead of a well-earned destruction, they received life, the reason why they didn't pay for their sins, and the reason why we don't pay for ours, is because Jesus pays the price. On the cross, Jesus was struck for our sins. And in John 19, it says of Christ on the cross, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The reason why the rock gushed with life-giving water, and the reason why St. Paul is, is, is sing, singing this hymn is one and the same. Jesus stood in our place and took the penalty for our sins so that by his death, we are given life. Because he was pierced for us, the waters of life rush to us and save us from death. And that's the gospel. Now the question is, do you believe this? Do I believe this? I mean, that's the sobering question. Because it's entirely possible to turn to Jesus, to hear his words, and yet to resist his grace. In other words, we can act and react like the chief priests. Consider our gospel reading. The chief priests and the elders of the people challenge Jesus by asking by what authority he has to teach, to clean out the temple, uh, to heal the people. Of course, I mean, it's possible to listen about Jesus being the rock that was struck on the cross, whose death gives us waters of life. But then we can say, well, I don't know, by what authority does Jesus presume to die for me? As if I needed dying for. And here's the point. There are questions, and then there are questions. 
You see, there's nothing wrong with having a genuine desire for understanding, a genuine desire to understand who Jesus is and what the cross means. But there are people who ask questions as a way to defend themselves, as a way to get Jesus off their case. And these kinds of questions have been around throughout history. Questions not, they're not, they're posed not in honest search for the truth, but questions designed to remain unanswered in order to justify our agnosticism towards the claims of Jesus. And Jesus won't have it. Notice that Jesus doesn't answer the chief priests. In fact, he unmasks their true intentions. He asks them, did John the Baptist do God's work or not? And the fact that they feel they can't answer without compromising their self-interests shows their lack of integrity. They're trying to trap Jesus in order to not believe in him. And the sad thing is, they are the religious ones. They're the honest church-going folk. They follow all the religious rules. They're praying every day, reading the Bible every day. They're tithing regularly. You know, they're being good people. But when it comes to Jesus Christ being Lord of their lives, Jesus being the unique revelation of God to humanity, the only way to God, they don't want to believe in Jesus. And so they just drum up questions and doubts to keep him at arm's length. And so they miss out on God's grace. Now the question is, am I doing that? Are you doing that? If we're unhappy with the way things are and how things are going, we need to start with ourselves. Are we, like Moses, turning to God, actually turning to God in prayerful trust, desiring his grace? Or are we turning to God, or are we turning to Jesus, like the chief priests, raising questions to God that we really don't want answered so that we remain in charge of our own lives? In other words, are we relying on the idea that, you know, hey, I'm, a, I'm not perfect, but I'm okay, instead of admitting that I'm severely broken and in need of rescue? Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is a generous gift of life more powerful than death. And as with any gift, all we have to do is turn to God in Jesus Christ and receive it. Let's pray. Merciful God, we renounce our pride and all pretensions of self-righteousness, and we come to you in repentance and faith. We trust your death to give us life. We praise you for the gift of salvation. Amen.